Thank you for coming back to Out of the Main. I am Tom Nixon. And I am born at sea and, and I raised am, on radio. Oh, I wow. thought I was. We both are. Okay. What does that mean? I have no idea. Okay. Good. Well, it does mean that we are out of the main, and you can, of course, learn everything you want to know about us and past and future projects at outofthemain.com. That's where you can hit us up with some messages. You can check out our new gear. We have new merch uh, with the new, new brand. Swag. The word yeah. is swag these days. Swag. I thought that was a uh, seaworthy name. No, that's... Sea hag. Oh, sea hag. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. That's different. Is that like from Popeye or something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the hags. All right. Well, talk about going off the map. Let's get somewhat back on track and at sort least talk of. about music. Mm-hmm. You teed this up as a cliffhanger last week during the Neil Steubenhouse affair. Yeah. And anyone that's tuned in obviously knows who we're going to talk about. I mean, it's right there in the title. Yeah. But uh, the great Bob Clearmountain, what a interesting story he has. And as I said, I think that he is the voice of the 80s. He's he never, he took all of the gear and all the things that were happening. We'll probably dive into each of them, but nobody was able to harness this power hmm. like he did in a musical way. There's a lot of people that made big, audacious sounding records, and he did to some degree. But when people complain about the reverb of the 80s or the gated reverb or the over this or the over too much of that, Typically, they weren't talking about Bob Clearmountain mixes. Yeah. So that is why I say this is the man who is the voice of the 80s from the good side. The records that sounded good in that period. Now, I don't want to just tie him to the 80s either, but that's where it sort of all all starts. Yeah. So it begs the question, who is Bob Clearmountain? And uh, I brought this up in episode one, sort of in a roundabout way of season five, in that I talked about the tie or the connection to, say, Yacht Rock, which we've uh, examined chapter and first was at times a pursuit of perfection. Talked mm-hmm. about, right, the um, Steely Dan guys. They literally said that they were pursuing perfection. Yeah. And then we talked about the likes of, say, I don't know, evil David, Sa- or not David Sanborn, evil David Foster. Foster who used evil David Sanborn at times to, I think, pursue a perfection as well. Yeah. Like if it wasn't good enough, he was kicking even b- members of the band out, bringing mm-hmm. in session guys. Yep. He was exploring these new synthesis, uh, synthesized sounds and techniques and all this stuff. Um, and then Bob Clearmountain kind of comes in near the, t- I know his career started before, but sort of rises to prominence as this is sort of evolving in the Yacht Rock world. Is this right? What year are you thinking of that? Well, I'm, I'm trying thinking, to follow. Here, here's where, and this is where you could maybe. When I think of Bob Clear Mountain, and this is maybe what you referred to earlier, I think of the Hall and Oates album, Big Bamboo. Yes. Okay. So this, to me, that also represents the day the boat sank. Remember that episode? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. natural progression of where artists and their production teams were going in the pursuit of perfection and it was totally different than the yacht rock sound and i feel like that's when in my mind i discovered who bob clearbouton was i know he had a career before that but that's why i say yes. there were anchors to this evolution of the pursuit of perfection we talked in an earlier episode this season about how what makes the 80s a different challenge to look at from the 70s is that the 80s you have to much more include the studio and all of the gear that's associated with it, whether it be reverbs, delays, choruses, compressors, any of that stuff, you have to factor that into the discussion because in a lot of records, for better or for worse, that was as big a part of creating the record as the recording process. In some 
times, as I said, bigger. Throughout the 70s, the goal was to record what we were hearing in the room as best as we could, and then maybe we are able to enhance it with some uh, cleanup, some EQ, things like that, but we weren't taking those sounds and then redeveloping them into something newer or bigger. That became part of the 80s, but it can't be overlooked as part of the record-making process for a lot of great records. Um, so that's where Big Bamboom sits. And I think that uh, even though he didn't do Yes is 90125, I kind of put that in the same area. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it wasn't a case of, hey, we recorded these songs, let's mix it. There was uh, you know, as much about what can we do in the studio with what we have to create something that hasn't been heard before. And I think he is credited by some, and by me for sure, as taking the uh, trade of mixing and elevating it to an art form. Well, he's known to be the first, um, what would you say, mix specialist. Right. And that started much earlier. But he tells stories about how his love for music brought him into a a career in the studio and quickly he realized that the mix process is what he want, wanted to do. And even later on when he started producing records, including Big Bamboom, he would he realized after he said producing 20 or 30 records that he didn't want to do that anymore. He just wanted to mix. That became the thing that interested him. Well, you mentioned, so obviously prior to what I said, is you know, I was anchored at around 1986 in that album. As you said, there was people who were brought into Rick's mix records all all the time prior to. But as Clear Mountain says in one of his interviews, it was almost like mixing was being done by the producer at the time of the recording previously. Mm-hmm. Like there was already a vision for how this was going to eventually be mixed. And mm-hmm. this now marks a, a turn where it's like the mixing becomes a separate process after the recording. And that's why the importance of having a guy like Clear Mountain become an artiste in the realm of mixing, I think, marks a decided transition for where music's going to go. Now there's all sort of mix specialists. You know, both Lord Al's brothers are, mm-hmm. you know, two of the hottest commodities, but it goes beyond that. There, the idea of a mix specialist is so commonplace now, but it started really uh, late 70s, really, with Bob. I yeah. mean... I, you know, when he got his start, do you realize that the first record he ever recorded and mixed was a Cool in the Gang record? I did not know that. Yeah, I just learned that today. Early, early Cool Cool in the Gang. I don't even remember which uh, tune it was, but he was um, working as an assistant engineer at Power Station in New York. And the regular engineer, who was um, Tony Bongiovi, which is um, John Bongiovi's cousin, owned the Power Station, uh, just didn't show up for the session for Cool in the Gang. And so Bob said so well, somebody's got to take the reins here and he eventually recorded the band and um he said that ronald bell was super cool and uh kind of came in and listened to the sounds he was getting and said yeah this is great let's cut it and then he ended up mixing one of the tunes and so it was a a chance moment but it was also a case of uh not passing up when you saw your opportunity yeah you know but so I just thought one of the earliest, probably one of the earliest records he worked on was the Chic album. Right? That actually comes later, a little okay. bit later. Yeah. Yep. And so what's his role on that? You... Well, he did engineer that, but that is after Power Station had been fully furnished. Um, he helped design the studio. Mm. Bob's a young guy at this time. Yeah. But uh, Tony Bongiovi is taking advice from him on how to set up the room. What gear did they need? Uh, Bob is credited with selecting, you know, the famous NS10 speakers, mm-hmm. the little, they're black bookshelf shaped speakers with a, the white 
uh, woofer, very identifiable. Bob was a fan of those and said, yeah, let's put some NS10s in here. Well, the NS10 became the speaker, yeah, the speaker that every studio had to have going forward still to this day. So, I mean, Yamaha ought to be paying a heck of a credit <laughs> to Bob for that. But Two questions arise real quick. Well, I'll, I'll finish the thought. So going to Chic, yes. that Bon Jovi now has opened his newfangled place with all the gear that Bob has designed, and their very first client is Chic. And now this relationship between now Rogers and Bob Clearmountain is born. Oh, so put a pin in that is yes. what you're trying to do. Gotcha. My questions were, one, do you think Tony Bongiovi knows that he's spelling his name wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and number two is, can you play a little off that chic album just so I can get my groove on? Funky. Yes. You know, Bob, one of the things that Bob did when he was there was uh, he was, and this is what part of what makes him so different from anybody else. He had the ability to scout out reverb chambers in a building, hmm. meaning uh, walk into like a, a lady shower and hear the ring of that room and say, yeah, let's mic this room up. And, and that actually is the ambience around the vocals on that tune right there that ah oh, freak out the the ambience around that is coming from this bathroom chamber <laughs> but he would also mic up the stairwell the back stairwell had a microphone in it or microphones and so what they would do is they would wire it so that you could send signal from the studio into speakers that would then blast that sound into the stairwell and then you'd have microphones set up at you know key places to record that sound back and that becomes your reverb so these organic reverbs is also what sets him apart from somebody who would use an electronic reverb unit. He was big on that. <laughs> and one of the notes they said is that that stairwell could give you a reverb time as long as four to five seconds. But on a rainy day, apparently high humidity made the reverb chamber last a full second longer. Wow. So he would mix ballads on rainy days. <laughs> Seriously. That's amazing. Um, didn't he go on to like create some of those sounds as plugins and patches now, or like digitally? Yeah, he works for Apogee Electronics. Okay, and he has, I'll, I'll kind of explain a little bit of that later when maybe if we talk about his process. Um, but yes, he has captured a lot of that stuff for this particular stuff that he's put his name to, and it's very good stuff. But um, I was going through. I thought maybe we could go through. I he has on his website the discography of anything that he's worked on. And I just kind of scroll through that and just certain things caught my attention, all kinds of genres. So I just, I wanted to buzz through some of that and you can add yours as you see fit too. Mm -hmm. But I think it points out what range he had that people do think, Oh, Bob Clearmount, the guy that's that gated reverb guy, right? Big bam, boom. Right. Well, can you just pause real quickly? Sure. Cause I was going to bring this up. So a lot of people credit him with being the guy who invents gated reverb. And he says, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but I think that's out there. Could you just explain quickly what that means to someone who has no idea what you're talking okay. about? I think we need to do a deeper dive onto what that is. I'm down for this. that. Yeah. Because I, I can't explain it in five seconds, but Essentially, gated reverb is this idea that 
uh, reverb is the simulation of some sort of room reflection. So say in auditoriums, which you, you hear your voice in an auditorium and you say, hey, and you hear it maybe linger for three, four seconds. That's your reverb chamber. Now, if you wanted to use a lot of that on an instrument, like a, it became commonly used with drums, that you, if you had all these, every time your snare drum hit, you had a three or four second reverb decay on it, it got muddy really fast. Mm-hmm. So they developed this idea of being able to gate off the reverb. So gating it means shutting it off. So the snare drum was it was wired in such a way that you take the signal from the snare drum into this gate. And every time the snare hit, the gate would open, Hugely. allowing the reverb to come through. And then at a pre-prescribed time that you could dial in, it would close down again. So instead of it going, it would be cut off real quick. That's essentially what gated reverb is in the crudest form. And so just because it's come up so many times, people complained about the sound of the gated reverb of the 80s. Essentially, they're referring to when they disparage it is this huge snare sound that is just overtaking the mix. Yes. Okay. Yes. So continue. Yes. And that's something that needs to be clarified with Bob. Goes back to the organic chambers that Mm. he was using, as opposed to these other electronic reverb units that had a much harsher and brighter sound to them. So when you gated them off, you got this clear like. You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to a nice room that, you know, you might be fooled into thinking it's a little bit of a, you know, that the room had that natural decay. It doesn't sound yeah. as obvious. Yes. And that was part of the sound of Bob. So um, I, I grouped these, the ones that caught my eye, and this is just to show the range. This is nowhere near everything he did, but he's most known probably uh, in the Sophistapop era as. Uh, Avalon, Roxy Music. Sounds exquisite. Maybe one of the best sounding records of all time. It's often put up there with Asia in terms of being the old, uh, you know, system tester he also did flesh and blood for roxy music that was the album before that and brian ferry's first two solo records which all kind of sound in that and same it, basic area yeah and in those cases brian ferry's producing and he's mixing or are they different producers or does he ever produce uh that's a good question i know brian ferry produced his solo albums and bob would have mixed i don't know okay production on roxy music offhand it may have been produced by the band or uh itself but um so then if we look at, say, the sticking in the Euro sound uh, or look the new wave thing. So, you know, think of Simple Minds, Alive and Kicking. What a great big mix that is. Sanctify Yourself, another Ooh. one. Um, David Bowie's Let's Dance. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Let's dance to the song. There's his connection with Nile Rodgers. Right. Because Nile Rodgers is producing that. Nile Rodgers is playing those guitars. Yep. Not the lead, but the rhythm stuff. I wonder if we ever played the lead. Yeah, right. <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughan, for those who are In Excess's Kick album. Yeah. Another amazing that. record for its style. 
All right, uh, I have to pause there really quickly okay. because my commentary on that one I told you offline, and I just think it's funny. So I'm a huge NXS fan in the '90s, right? Listen mm-hmm. like these and the one thing that type of sound. So that's early '80s. I mean, so then this album comes out, and I'm like, wait, what did they do to NXS and who did it? Yeah, and particularly, uh, I need you Mediate? tonight comes out. Oh yeah, and media. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a single, and I'm like, I don't like this one bit, but I, <laughs> I cannot take my ears off of it. <laughs> What is going on? The song is so mid, but it sounds so beautiful. And I eventually go on to love the album and that song even. So that goes back to that's all the good, the bad, yep. and everything. That's all Bob Clearmountain. And I think you'll find a common thread as I finish going through these is that in each of these subgenres, these are probably some of the best sounding records of that genre and the best sounding records of those particular artists yeah not necessarily always their best music but the best sonically most easy on the ears most interesting for the ears so um pop soul we mentioned like big bam boom that's you know a perfect example and you also did the singles that were the new tracks on rock and soul part one from um Hollow Notes, and that is Say It Isn't So, mm. and Adult Education. Adult Education sounds so good. Now, man. In the you, mix. You, so you just listen to that. Well, we're going to stop here, and we're going to listen to the greatest point in Clear Mountain's mixing ideas. I don't know if it was his idea or whose it was, but we are going to listen to the end of the bridge of Adult Education, focus on the drum sounds, and then when it changes, suddenly an entire new world emerges in the drum sounds. What it goes from drum machine to that live huge? What is going on there? Yeah, well, similar to what Foster was doing with Chicago at the time, they both had this ability to create drum sounds out of organic drums that has the mind guessing. Wait, is that a drum machine? Are those are they triggering something? No, it's just the way it's it's like the opposite of last uh, or a couple weeks ago when you brought up. uh, ABC show me where it does the opposite it starts with the big roomy thing and then it cleans up so this is the opposite Ooh. just explodes <laughs> alright yes. um, long long we're going to go to Americana Rock Okay. long long relationship with Bruce Springsteen going all the way back to uh, Born in the USA Bo- no before that um, uh, Born to Run Born to Run going all the way back to Born to Run and somebody pointed out that one of his best sounding mixes was from the river, even though it was a big hit that people kind of sort of pushed aside. Check out the mix of Hungry Heart. There's an, that's an interesting sounding mix. Yeah. And uh, that's Bob. He was with them, uh, as you said, born in the USA. Maybe that's an area where he little maybe lost a little control of the uh, reins of the, the gated reverb there. Supposedly that was... Uh, Bruce pushing him for more, 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 yes. bigger, louder. Well, there's an interesting uh, little um, 
interview that you've sent me on YouTube. Yeah. Maybe I'll post in the show notes, and it's a couple of engineer geeks talking to him about that record. And they've got all the original tracks, and they can pull all the stuff away and put it all back on. Really interesting to watch. But what I thought was interesting about um, this Bob Clear Mountain is it wasn't always about trying to find that sound that we just showed you it no. was so cool sometimes it was like this is a, i'm recording a bar band it needs to sound like a bar band right and it did for the most part it really did yeah so it's not all about I, i'm the one that said pursuit of perfection there it doesn't mean it has to be pristine and clean every time that what, isn't always what perfection is what's no. perfect for bruce is not right. what's perfect for hall and oats at the same time yeah that is a that is an interesting view and they ask him at one point because the reason he's doing it is that he had received the tracks because he was going to be creating surround and atmos mixes so job number one was to reassemble the mix with today's gear as close to sounding as like the original as he could Mm -hmm. that needs to be the starting point and then they'll create the different surround mixes from there so they asked him well how long did this take you to do he's like about an hour (laughs) then he says maybe two then they said the original mix back in the 80s with all the two or three hours max maybe (laughs) (laughs) And that's funny because as you mix, right, you could probably pour over a single track for hours to build it, right? You can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, let me finish this list, and then that goes to his process. But Americana Rock was still there. Bruce Springsteen, uh, years and years of uh, the Brian Adams, all the Brian Adams catalog. Um, he mixed Huey's Power of Love. Mm. You know, now that's a beautiful sounding, powerful record. Uh, classic rock. I mean, Journey, Raised on Radio. Mix that. Did he really? Rolling Stones, Tattoo You. Whatever you think about that record, it's one of the great sounding records of oh, their yeah. career. And the Miss Going Me back single. to your point, though, I think that's the pinnacle of the Stones sound. Yeah. It might not be their, your favorite album, but that's like that's what the Stones are supposed to sound like. Yep. And then Alt Americana, Robbie Robertson's Storyville, oh, 1992. Yeah. And that, believe it or not, is his first Grammy nomination. It took all the way to 92 wow. for Clear Mountain to get any notice from the Grammys. I'm shocked. Did you have any that you pulled out? I still have a few more, but... Uh, no, it's, it's just another, it's another matter. I mean, you go to his website, you look at discography, and it's uh, sorted alphabetically. It just goes on. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, amazing. We, we should talk, though, about, I mean, just quickly, he's won multiple Grammys just yeah. for mixing. And so that's A lot just, of it's live stuff. He's become a specialist at live stuff, yeah. too, for the Stones, as well as the Who. Uh, I'm trying to think L- of who Live else. Aid, he mixed. Oh, um, Toto, 40 Tours Around the Sun. And most recently, that tribute to the uh, the uh, fallen drummer of the Foo Fighters, they did a live record, I think, in mm. Africa, if I'm not mm. mistaken. He mixed that. So he's still very relevant to this day. I mean, still working and very active, too. Did you know he did uh, Glenn Phillips' Winter Pays for Summer? Did you You're catch that? You're kidding me. No. So listeners may you or may not that? know, I'm a huge Glenn Phillips yeah. fan. And what's funny about that, just as a aside, this is so funny. So Glenn Phillips leaves uh toe the west bracket they all break up and he starts a solo career in my recollection or my reaction to his first two records are boy you could tell he's doing this on his own 
Ah. And then Winter Pace for Summer comes along. I'm like, finally, <laughs> this sounds spectacular. <laughs> and I had no idea. So there you go. All right. Well, then maybe I'll catch you uh, with a couple others. The second collective soul record. Did not Which is know an that. era that you were yep. from. Um, Crowded House, man. Temple of Low Men, Woodface, those two records. Great records. Rupert Holmes' Widescreen, which is generally considered Rupert's more artistic album. Hmm. Uh, Howard Jones in the Running, 1992. Little River Band, The Net. He did a lot with Amy Mann. He mixed Till Tuesday's big single, uh, Voices Carry. Uh, as I, I mentioned, the Toto thing. He also did Kingdom of Desire for Toto, which a lot of people love the way that record sounds. And Midge Ewer, I just wanted to try and say that again on Mike, <laughs> Answers to Nothing, which we featured his song, Dear God, last season. Yes. So it's all over the place is the point. And I'm focusing on the more 80s and 90s and 70s stuff. I mean, he's still, to your point, doing contemporary records. You know, I, he did O-Town back when O-Town came out. Remember O-Town? <laughs> of course I do. Ah. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Wasn't that uh, Martin or uh, Simon uh, Simon Cowell's uh, creation? Well, it sounds like something he'd yeah. create. All right. So, real quick, his process, what's great about what he's doing is that he still mixes old school, but he, his... Well, I'll explain you what his basic process is, and then I'll tell you why. So his basic process is he has his studio set up. He has a large SSL console, uh, analog console, which allows him to get very hands-on and quickly adjust EQs and things so he can work very quickly, very um, accurately. Then he has so many things already pre-set up and pre-ready to go. He's got specific compressors that he knows he likes on vocals. He has specific uh processors he knows he likes on drums he has specific eqs all this stuff is all set up hardware wise he's got multiple uh chambers already mic'd up and ready to go like a stairwell Mm -hmm. like a bathroom like another room and then he maybe has an electronic uh reverb and then he's got his plug-in specifically called uh clear mountains domain which is a combination of um reverb delay and some pitch shifting things but he's got all of this stuff all set up ready to go at all times and now he brings up your tracks and he's able to just kind of play and listen and maybe i'll send a little bit of uh, this to the that chamber uh, maybe i'll send it a little here maybe i'll eq this with that but he's kind of not having to rebuild anything from the ground up he's not starting oh i'm gonna have to patch in this reverb let me wheel this thing in let me set up microphones out in the control room or the the studio to set up as a reverb chamber all this stuff is set up so he can just sit in his chair and listen and then he adjusts and he tweaks and he moves things and he was asked in that video how do you know when you're done he said well i just keep playing the song and as i hear something i fix it and as i hear something i fix it And when i realize i'm not getting up from my chair anymore to fix anything I deem it to be done. <laughs> but that's because he's got everything pre-set up, ready to go. He doesn't have to think about any of that busy work or even the physical work of running cables, running patch cords. Did this patch cord fry out on me? You know, yeah. It's all set up 
or I sit down, bring up the tracks, and I can just start thinking about what is the music supposed to sound like. And you said, as a mixer, producer, everything that you do is a challenge for you personally to know when something's done. And having the, I guess, courage to say, I'm, I'm ready to walk away and this is it. Yeah, often you have to walk away and come back several days later and listen. And then often you say, what was I hung up on? You can't remember. Mm-hmm. Two you inter- yeah, two interesting things I thought about his style that he says in his various articles, interviews, website, etc. Is that he starts with a mix. He brings everything up. Every yeah. fader. He's like, I want to hear what I got first. And then, like you said, he starts. It's almost like uh, how you... Uh, you know, sculpt an elephant. You just take a block of clay and you start chipping yeah. away everything that's not an elephant. Yeah. And he yeah. kind of has that same approach. Yeah, he does. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, this is a little inside baseball for the geeks, but um, for those who are out there. So we talk a little a bit about what compression is. Essentially, I'm going to explain it for the layperson. Okay. Uh, basically, you're, take, you're applying a call it a filter so that nothing gets too loud and nothing is too quiet essentially you're kind of compressing it all into one area did you know that he says for his vocals he often does not do compression unless that's specifically a sound he's going for mm-hmm. instead he normalizes the volume through the uh automating the faders mm-hmm. i thought that was very i've never heard of anyone that did that maybe that's common i don't know it's it's not common because it's easier to mm-hmm. put a compressor on something to control it than to go through the minutiae but there is a certain character that compression can provide that if you're looking for it, like in a rock and roll thing where you're looking to increase the intensity, maybe you get a little distortion out of something, drive, where it can be uh, an, uh, a positive add-on. But it can also be in the other circumstance where you have a vocal that you want to f- sound free and you want it to sound airy and you want it to sound open – you don't want all that compression and all that drive affecting it, and you want a natural sound. And the only way to control the level of something without a compressor would be that way. And that's something that's easier to do now with a computer because you can almost use a pencil tool to draw up and down where you want the fader to go. Right, yep. Uh, But back then, you actually had to learn the performance and learn how to make these fader moves sometimes very quick moves yeah. in order to get like if somebody's singing something the last word trails off and you got to give that a quick boost and you don't want it to sound unnatural yeah it's tricky all right well i have a couple notes of interesting projects um because you and i both used to love that delamitri album do you mm-hmm. remember that one yep you worked on that one twisted 1995 if you're not familiar with that it's not yacht rock at all but it's very very good rock um, and then I thought, and then Russ Ballard, speaking of, yeah, uh, but let me just play a quick round of, um, clear mountain roulette. I'm going to hit okay. the spinner and then you say stop and wherever it stops, that's the album we're going to feature. Ready? Stop. Um, free <laughs> the band free, you, you know, those guys band free. What? I didn't know. He must have worked there very early on. We talked about free. Remember? Yeah. All right. That's now. what you think of as uh, classic, classic rock. rock. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it again. Ready? Go. Stop. Ooh. What'd you hit? Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. Oh my gosh, there's your Springsteen connection. <laughs> there you go. All right, yeah. one last time. Ready? Yep. Hit. Simple Minds, which we talked about. Yeah. But, so he's all over the map. Gosh, it was just three just there. roulettes. Um, wow. I think it's a nice little tour down uh, his catalog. It's just a, He's got all the album covers, alphabetical, and you just, you're just like, I'm just, okay, sixpence, none the richer. you got to be kidding me. Are there right? any in there Switch that we foot. would say is clearly over the top, and boy, that 
that's a jump the shark moment where it was overproduced. I don't think that with Big Bamboom. I know that it's a very synthetic record at times, but I think it fits so perfectly. I think the only place that people might think is Born in the USA, maybe? Hmm. That sounds like I, you're going bigger than Bar Band. Yeah. I, my answer was going to be the only one that goes up to the line is the uh, Hall and Oat stuff, but I don't think it ever crosses it. But I bet a lot of people do think that. Yeah. Fools. Yeah, fools. Um, he also mixed some wild feathers did he really oh, yes oh one my song gosh. my favorite song on their first album too <laughs> oh we my could gosh. do this all day yes we could oh man, man. yes his fingerprints are all over the place paul westerberg oh but again God. you keep John saying Wayne. oh that's their best sounding or i love that that's my favorite it's, blah 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 it's true it just seems to be the case that he has the ability to create the best sound within any subgenre and sometimes the best sounding record within any artist's catalog yeah Well, so have we answered who is Bob Claremountain? Yeah, I think we've kind of, I think we've hit the high points. In a sense. There's so much more. You know, he comes off to as such a nice guy, yes. very soft-spoken, but boy, is he confident in what he does. Yeah. And, and not a- in an arrogant way at all, but he believes in what he does, and he believes he's doing it right. He knows he's not doing it the way everyone else is. Right. He yes. knows that full well. And he's, as he says, he's tried to do some mixes in the box, which means all within the computer. And he doesn't like doing it that way. He doesn't agree that that it doesn't sound as good. He said it could, but he's just not interested in doing it that way. He believes in his way, and there's no one that can point to any catalog of mixer that has made more great sounding records than him does he go on your rushmore of music production professionals on the technical side yeah. if there's a technical one yeah i'm just talking producers mixers masters yes yes in yes. engineers yes yes and no no doubt about it okay probably the first one i'd put on there really yeah you love your clear moan i'm yeah. glad we got into this well because he does all of it too yeah you know in terms of producing, you mean? And yeah, you know, he didn't do a ton of it, and he did say he got tired of it. Yeah. Uh, he probably went into it. I'm thinking that, so here's somebody who likes, likes to mix. He probably went into it thinking, man, if I could be in control from the beginning, imagine how good this could sound. Because <laughs> sometimes yeah. he's probably got sent stuff that you know, he would have loved to have been in the room when it was being recorded, and it could save a lot of the issues he was dealing with in the moment. But then he decided, you know what? There's too much BS that goes on during the the recording, too much infighting, too much drama, too much this. Just tell me when you're ready and I'll mix it and just and stay away. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, he's a, apparently a bit of a recluse, and I think that uh, kind of speaks to his uh, proclivity to just kind of want to be left alone, and I'll give this back to you when it's ready. Yeah, recluse would imply that he's kind of a weirdo or a whack No, job. he's not, not at only all. that, I just think he is, enjoys his quiet time, enjoys mm-hmm. the music part of the job, and doesn't want to get caught up in any of the other stuff. All right, I'm just going to give you three more. Okay. And then we can hit the lightning round. Okay. Edie Burkell, Jonathan Brook, who you may not know. I know. And Jackson Brown. Those are my Bs. Which Jackson Brown? Um, The Naked Ride Home, 2002. I don't know that one at yeah. all. Yep. Well. Why would you ride home naked? Um, well, I don't want to know. Probably because you're a yacht rocker, <laughs> I guess. Let's hit the lightning round. All right. Lightning round. Uh, maybe do you have a uh, irrelevant uh, found at sea? I, I do. Okay. Very very quickly that um, we had found a playlist on Spotify that someone had compiled and we added to it that uh, 
had a bunch of Clear Mountain stuff on it. And it reminded me that he spent all that time with Brian Adams. And I was never crazy about Brian Adams. It was okay. It was just kind of rock, mm-hmm. you know, for me. Uh, but his third album, or not third album, but after he became popular, this became this was his third album. So this is 1987. The Into the Fire album is actually a very, very good record from Brian. It's not quite as... Uh, obvious trying to do the almost the springsteen thing like the first couple records were um got a nice like bluesy subtext to this record Mm. so check out the 1987 album from brian adams into the fire play a little bit of the sort of hit off of that one it was called heat of the night So that's what I found at Sea, that there was a Brian Adams album that I really enjoyed. Interesting. All right. Um, and I'm kind of in the same boat with you, um, but it's one of those things where I, you had me listen to that album, and again, that's it's probably best-sounding stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to go uh, to something left over from last week's episode, sort of. Um, you know, just a curious discovery I made that put a lot of people found at Sea. Oh, um, because I was searching for some obscure Neil Steubenhouse tracks, uh, <laughs> playing bass, and I stumbled upon this album that I shared with you, and uh, it's the Neil Diamond headed for the future. Oh, so of course yeah. we know Neil Diamond was found at sea by being uh, certified for Heartlight. Yep, be that as it may. But the, the personnel on this album, so you've got David Foster, Michael Landau, Tristan Bowden, and Bill the Simmons. <laughs> yep, Bill Champlin. Randy Kerber, Burt Bacharach, uh, Dan Hoff, uh, Neil Steubenhouse, Carlos Vega, Paulina DaCosta, I meant to say Vega, mm-hmm. uh, Craig Fillon Gaines, Steve Lucas III, Nathan East, John Robinson, Maurice White. In case you've forgotten, this is a Neil Diamond album I'm describing. Yeah. Jason Chef, Tris Imboden again, uh, Bill Champlin, Herbie Hancock, Stevie Wonder, Bobby Caldwell. <laughs> I think I got to just stop because it just goes on and on and on forever. Anyways, uh, the tune that I found well you would have thought it would have been a better album with all that yeah it's got some high moments but it's got some a lot of filler anyways uh this one was written by bayer sager at backrack so it's halfway decent foster on synth neil subenhouse like i said dan huff me beside you that was a carryover from heartlight because that's the same lineup that was on heartlight i wonder and it's kind of like heartlight which i don't think is yacht rock but apparently it is it's sort of got a yachty kind of vibe to it you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. anyway that's what i found at sea nice um for buried treasure i'm going back to our friend clear mountain i'm going back to the big band boom record and there's a bugaboo about that album one of the hits is the method of modern love right i think it sounds awesome going back to need you tonight right mm-hmm. by NXS. just sounds amazing so yeah. I'm, I'm willing to stick around but for me the song just kind of plods along <laughs> it goes nowhere until the buried treasure uh, emerges yep where they start going over a different chord progression and it's right here
you're all the the whole song. Once you know it, you're waiting for that part because that's where it picks up, and that's you know the the ad lib vocal series yes. that he does there is stellar. But just by going through a new chord progression, it it changes everything, and I start to melt every time. Yeah. Even knowing this whole time there, I'm like, man, am I bored? Until I get there, and then mm, buried it, treasure. It Back almost seems it. intentional when you well. Maybe it was, now that Maybe. you mention it. Yeah. yeah. All right. What have uh, you got for a buried treasure? <laughs> well, I'm going to hit it one more time. If you, <laughs> if, if you missed it the first time, you have got to hear the mix transition from drum machine to real drums on adult education. If you missed it the first time around, here it is one more time. Please hit it. I'm sorry. I just I, that moment is so good. You spent all this time with the what's probably a DMX drum machine or something like that. Could even be an 808, <laughs> and then bam. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it it bared repeating, so it was worth revisiting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm gonna stick. Or do you have a no? So now it's back to me, right? Or is it you? No, I gotta do my word. final thought. Okay, I get the final word again. Dang it! Working out great. Yeah. Uh, on Bob's website, he has a little section called Isn't It Odd, which just, this is like random thoughts by Bob. So, isn't it odd there's an interstate highway on Hawaii? <laughs> and just like deep, deep thoughts deep by thoughts, Jack yeah. Candy. <laughs> isn't it odd there's no grilled macaroni on the menu at Macaroni Grill? <laughs> isn't it odd the doorknob on hotel room doors are designed so that the do not disturb sign always falls off when you open the door? <laughs> And last but not least, isn't it odd that people will scramble for a parking place as close as possible to the front door of the gym so that they can walk four miles on a treadmill? <laughs> Excellent stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's pretty good. All right. So is it up to me now? Yeah. Once again, I am going to cede my time. The final thought is going to be brought to you by the initial thought of how Big Bam Boom opens. I love how they use Dance on Your Knees to establish the sonic palette of what this album's going to be, and then it it uh, just evolves directly into the hit Out of Touch. All right, so there you go. That is your Who is Bob Clearmount episode. And uh, how do we end these? Dance on your knees. No, it's not no, that. No, it's not that. Um, oh, wait. What is it? Never mind. Ahoy, Paloy. <laughs> <laughs>